Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. Our readings today are from the book of Exodus. Chapters 2, if I don't lose it, verses 1 through 10, and chapter 15, verses 20 and 21, which you may find on page 48 and 61 of your pew Bibles, respectively. Let's pray. Patient God, be with us in the reading of your story, that we might remember your work in ages past and come to trust the ways you continue to work through us here and now. Amen. From the story of the Israelites' exodus, we read, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him for her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. And from chapter 15, after the plagues and the Passover, as the Israelites walked to freedom through the parted sea, we read, Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Our Exodus story that Scott has read the beginning of today is the most important foundational, formational story in all of the Hebrew Bible. 
And I don't think I ever actually heard, really heard that story until I was an adult and already ordained in ministry, which is worrisome. I was teaching religion class at our church school for the church that I served down in Miami, Florida. And this particular year, I had this group of second grade students that just required a lot of my attention. Their classroom teacher early in the year had had a play day, and this teacher had decided to split up the class in half, girls versus boys. And this particular class carried their competitive spirit far outside of that play day, and it showed up most often in my classroom. I initially tried to insist that we all work together, isn't it more fun, how God made this into community together, but I was outnumbered. They, I was at their mercy, and they knew it. How this played out in my religion classroom was that my little girls would start to heckle all of my lessons. My girls were quick. None of our students were from particular religious backgrounds. It was our church school. I was teaching religion, but they were of no religion at all, a few Christian, a few Jewish. But my girls were quick, and it didn't take them any time to realize just how many of our faith stories have a male lead. And so if the story of the day was about Abraham, they made sure that I gave Sarah equal airtime. And if I was talking about King David, they wanted to know where was his queen. Eh, that's a harder story for kids. It was when we got to the story of Exodus that they got the best of me. One of my little female leaders was a Jewish student named Miriam. And she was not happy with the way I attempted to introduce the Exodus story. I don't remember entirely, but I assume I was introducing them to the land of Egypt, to the Hebrew people who had lived there peacefully all this time, to this new pharaoh who was now afraid of all of these foreigners and determined to get rid of them. I'm sure that I jumped right to baby Moses and the basket floating down the river and the burning bush. But my little Miriam interrupted me and let me know I was getting all of it wrong. And I don't remember what led me to do this, but I finally just sat down and let an eight-year-old teach the class. It's probably one of my best teaching decisions. And so little Miriam stood and explained to all of us that this pharaoh was, in her polite eight-year-old use of the English language, silly. It's not, that he, it's not just that he was evil, he was, but he was also very not smart. She added with an eye roll in my direction that this was apparently part of the joke that I wasn't getting. The beginning of this story is meant to be kind of funny. This pharaoh is so silly that he tries to enslave the Hebrews, but they just get stronger. And then he tells the midwives to kill the baby boys, but Shipra and Pua, they don't do it. They just outright lie to the pharaoh because they know they can outsmart him. She paused here to explain that the pharaoh next tells all the people to throw all the baby boys into the water. And she laughed as she said that this pharaoh is so concerned about getting rid of the boys. He's trying to prevent a future army that could fight him. He's so concerned about the boys, he misses the girls who are outsmarting him at every turn. 
And so Jochebed has a baby. She already has a daughter and a son. And she births this baby with the same language as our creation stories. It says that she saw what she had made and he was good. And so they hide this baby as long as they can, which, as you know, wouldn't be long. And as soon as he gets too big and too noisy, they do what the Pharaoh asks. They put him in the river. Only first they make a boat for him. And his mom and his sister Miriam, they find a spot upstream from the princess's palace. They wait for a time when they know she'll be outside by the river, and then they let the baby go. My little Miriam proceeded to tiptoe back and forth across the classroom as she reenacted Miriam as she followed the basket down the river, never letting her brother leave her watchful gaze. She was probably about the same age as the historical Miriam as she does this. And so the princess finds the basket like they knew she would, and Miriam swoops in and offers to bring a nurse for the child, and the princess winks and Miriam nods, and they go to get the baby's mother. And all of this allows Miriam and Moses and Moses' mom to be raised in the palace. The baby is saved. She concluded her lesson by telling the class that this is who she is named for, Miriam, the hero of the Exodus story. It was the most true retelling I have ever witnessed. I am certain that every Bible teacher needs a group of tiny feminists heckling them to get the stories right. It's been just more recently... Actually, while searching for Mary Magdalene, that I've stumbled into our ancient hero again. Like my young student, our Jewish friends have much to teach us here. And so with some help from our Jewish scholars and my little Miriam's wisdom and our current womanist interpreters, let's see if we can find something of Miriam again. After that early account of young Miriam, we don't see her again until the sea is parted. The plagues and the Passover have come, and the Hebrews take off for the wilderness, not knowing it will be 40 years as they try to reach the promised land. It's as the sea is parted that we see Miriam with her tambourine, leading the congregation in a song of liberation and praise. The title Miriam is given here is Prophet. And this is the first time that that title has been given in all of the Hebrew Bible. She is the first person named as prophet in our Old Testament text. If we dig just a little deeper, we will learn that those two verses of Miriam's song, they're the oldest part of our Exodus story. Those words are written and repeated before the rest of the story is ever composed. Miriam's song is the anchor of the Exodus. And this is the song that Miriam sings. It sounds like the one that we will hear a little later from the voice of Hannah, mother of the prophet Samuel. It sounds like one we will hear much later from the voice of Mary, who sings in response to being told she will birth the Savior of the world. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls even reveal that some of the Hebrew songs that we currently have in our book of Psalms, they were first attributed to Miriam, their authorship lost or intentionally changed in our compiling and translating. 
Miriam's influence on the early Israel community was strong. Her tradition would have been alive still in Jesus' day. That's why you will find her if you are searching for Mary Magdalene. Miriam's name is Hebrew. Translated to Greek, it's Maria. In English, Mary. All of those Marys in our gospel stories, they're named after our first prophet. There's so much more to talk about here, but I can't help but to wonder why it took my little Miriam, thousands of years after our first prophet, to help me begin to find her. I think we see the beginning of our missing of Miriam in her very first expression of praise. Before we ever hear Miriam's song, the text includes a longer version, a longer song at chapter 15, and it is sung by Moses. That should sound strange to us. It's strange because what we know of Moses is that he's not a very good speaker. While negotiating with God around that burning bush, Moses says, I've never been eloquent. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And so they work out this deal that God will talk to Moses, and Moses will tell his brother Aaron, and Aaron will go and talk to the people. And so ten chapters later, Moses is leading the people in song. Our modern womanist interpreters, my little Miriam leader, they would tell us to be skeptical. And so it was two months ago that I last preached with you. It was the Sunday after Easter, and our text invited us to reimagine Mary Magdalene. I encouraged you then in the need to redeem the female voices of our biblical narrative, to find them and listen to them, which will always require some excavating from our tremendous history that has tried to edit them and keep them quiet. Since then, within these past two months, the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, our largest Protestant denomination in our country, they've reiterated their stance that women do not have authority to preach or teach in the church. Now, I hadn't exactly been holding out hope for our Southern Baptist friends, but with women like Beth Moore and others in their midst, the debate was at least becoming a little bit more interesting. But it was just within these months that the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Andy Moeller, was quoted saying, If you look at the denominations where women do the preaching, they are also the denominations where people do the leaving. I think there's just something about the order of creation that means that God intends for the preaching voice to be a male voice. I do wish Mr. Muller could have met my class of tiny feminists. I've said before that this is not just some random dude who likes to make his own YouTube videos, which is where this quote comes from. This is the view held by the vast majority of Christians in our world, including the majority of Christians here in the U.S., Even if individual churchgoers don't quite agree, they are still checking the membership boxes at churches that hold this view at a rate of almost three to one. So we don't see Miriam again until the book of Numbers. 
the book of Numbers is the continuation of the Israelites' journey. We find her in chapter 12, and there she's not singing. Now Miriam is angry. She is with her brother Aaron, and she is speaking against her brother Moses, and she says, Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? The question of authority. And she is right to ask it. Miriam doesn't yet know that her song will find its way into Moses' mouth, that her scheme to save her baby brother will be pushed behind camp songs with culturally insensitive hand motions. But as early as those wilderness-wandering days, the question of who God speaks through, who has the authority to lead the people, it has been rumbling through the community. First prophet gifts us with the question we've been fighting with ever since. It was also after that last sermon a couple of months ago that I was contacted by a young woman I didn't previously know, connected by one of you. This woman is a member at a new church here in our, in our city. She's been there since it started just a few years ago. It's one of these many new churches surrounding us that look very cool, and they're planted in communities that are booming with millennials. I confess I have been jealous. And this woman wanted to meet with me because she was needing some advice about meeting with her own pastor regarding her church's recent decision to ban women from leadership. As a leader herself in an entirely millennial congregation, she was surprised and hurt and angry. This isn't the first conversation I've had like this since moving here to Kansas City with you. There's a strange thing happening here. These churches are targeting the people that you charge me to do ministry with. They are speaking the language of our millennials, and they are doing it really well. But more often than not, behind their beautiful Instagram feeds, they cover up narrow theology and leadership practices that serve to tear down women and the LGBTQ community. They don't lead with this, which makes it that more insidious. When people realize it, a few of them end up here with us, but many more don't. Some will stay, weigh what they think is right with the community that they find important, but many more will leave the church altogether, possibly for good more comfortable having no God than one who is so small. Has God only spoken through Moses? I understand Miriam's anger. Thousands of years after she posed the question, why am I still sitting with young women who are yelling at the same thing? My concern is not entirely just for her. She is brilliant, she is feisty, she will be fine. My concern is bigger. Because we don't dance anymore. That tradition is gone. What have we conceded to those who turn God's living word into an idol of their own image? How long will we be content with the male voice repeating what has been before we lose the ability to dream of what can be? Has the Lord not spoken through us too? 
Miriam yells into the heavens, and God comes down in a cloud and scolds the three siblings. As God angrily departs, Miriam is left pale white, inflicted with something like leprosy. And her brother Aaron turns to Moses, begs him to do something. Moses turns and cries out to God in this prayer that we lose the beauty of in our English. He prays, El na rafa nala, hear, holy one, hear and heal her. And God seems to concede. There's a negotiation. Well, at least let her be outside the community for the minimum of seven days. So Miriam is kicked out of camp for seven days, back where the sick would have been, back with the menstruating women who couldn't be part of the community, back with the women recovering from childbirth, helping each other. But then this remarkable thing happens. The text says that the people did not set out again until Miriam had been brought back. Until their prophet was restored, these people would not move. These are our people who have grumbled since their first steps of freedom. These are the people who have yelled at Moses and railed against God, who erected their golden cow with no hesitation, who have begged to return to slavery rather than venture this wilderness another day. This is the people who now stage a collective sit-in begging for their prophet to be brought back. So we don't hear much about Moses during this, or we don't hear much about Miriam during this saga, but she's there. She's there long before that sea crossing because she's already earned the name of prophet. And she's there in the wilderness for the people refuse to move without her. We're given a glimpse, but that glimpse invites us to imagine like we must do or to recover the stories of our female leaders. All of those early years while Moses was away, being raised in the palace, fleeing for his life. Was it Miriam who had been ministering to the people? While Moses and Aaron performed signs for Pharaoh, while they negotiated with power for freedom, who was it that tended to the people's broken bodies and souls, who promised them their promised day would come? That song, that old song, that scrap of text that predates our story, were these the words that Miriam had been teaching while they suffered? Could it be that the people knew what to sing when they got to the sea? because Miriam had long been singing to them the song of liberation. And finally, she lifts her voice in anger, and her anger gets her afflicted, and her brothers pray on her account, and it also gets her heard. Our early ancestors edited, scripted the power of authority into Moses. But when we redeem Miriam, when we truly find her, Who is to say how this text could be read today? Who is to say that she is punished for asking for authority? What if she's punished for doubting whether she has it? What if God's response isn't a concession? What if it's the proof? It's God saying, look, my prophet, 
Look at your brothers intervene on your behalf. Look at your people protest your punishment. Am I not the God who schemed with you for your brother's salvation? Am I not the God who taught you to sing? Trust yourself, my daughter, for I, your brothers, your people, we choose you. We have to search and find Miriam. She is worth that searching. She might just be the one we need to stir our imaginations and dare us to engage in some holy anger and lead us to liberation. For we live now in wild days, and it is in days like these that our prophet speaks. Has the Lord not spoken through us too? She answers with her legacy, yes, the Lord continues to speak. The God of the universe who created heaven and earth, the one who walked in our midst and defeated death with life, she has not stopped doing impossible things. Do we believe the God who created dirt and breath, hung stars in the sky, and shaped humanity in her image? Do we believe that image is limited by our imagination? Do we believe the God who was birthed from Mary's womb and embraced by the Magdalene at the tomb would prevent the ones he loves from speaking his good news? Do we believe the one who plagued the powerful and parted the seas has ceased to be the God of liberation? History's editors and yesterday's pharaohs and today's limited leaders, there are plenty of powers, silly powers, attempting to tell us that the best has already been, that back to Egypt is where we should go, that are turning our ancient text into an idol to be protected and not a journey to be lived. But there are little Miriams being born in our midst still today. And God is speaking through them too. So let us be those who commit to finding her and following her and yelling and dancing when required. As the God who hasn't stopped liberating us leads us forward again and again. Let us pray. Hear, O God, hear us and heal us, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.